0: Welcome to the Physical
1: Therapy Network podcast, a podcast for orthopedic physical therapists where we interview master clinicians about the research that has influenced our practice over the years and give
0: you tips on how to apply it to your own clinical practice. We are the Physical Therapy Network. Thanks for joining us. Hi, everybody. This is Maya Paleo, the orthopedic PT resident at the Milwaukee VA Medical Center in affiliation with the University of Wisconsin Milwaukee PT program. Today, I'm looking forward to having a conversation with Dr. Lauren Hogan on the Physical Therapy Network. Hi, Lauren. Good to have you on. Hello, Maya. Thanks for having me. So, Lauren, do you mind sharing a little bit about yourself and how or why you got into physical therapy for our listeners? Sure.
1: Um, So, as Maya said, my name is Lauren Hogan. Um, I'm a physical therapist working in the Wauwatosa and Milwaukee, Wisconsin area. Um, And so, the the way that I got into physical therapy is probably similar to a lot of a lot of our colleagues. Uh, I was pretty active growing up. I competed in gymnastics and ran a lot. And I had my first bout of physical therapy around the age of twelve. And I realized pretty quickly that it was a really fascinating field where physical therapists could work together with their patients along the, you know they the rehabilitation process and the recovery process. Um, instead of a medical physician or somebody else where they'll see somebody at the beginning of an injury four to six weeks later, um, the, the physical therapists that I work with were really following along with my injuries. Um, and helping me through that process. And I found that really interesting. Um, So I attended Marquette University for both my undergrad and my physical therapy education. I did my undergraduate degree in athletic training, followed by my DPT. After graduating, I started working and then I did uh, the Evidence in Motion residency program in orthopedics, um, orthopedic PT. And then I eventually did a fellowship in orthopedic manual physical therapy at Regis University. Uh, so I've spent the majority of my out, my career working in outpatient um, physical therapy. I see a wide range of patients, uh, both orthopedic, sports medicine, and I have a special interest in treating headaches, sports-related concussion, and runners and other athletes. And then I also, I guess I split time between being in the clinic, and then I teach the orthopedic curriculum or musculoskeletal curriculum at UW-Milwaukee with my
0: Thank you for sharing a bit about yourself, Lauren. So in your years of practice, what research article has made a profound impact on the way that you practice?
1: So I had a tough time picking an article. Um, So I eventually fell on a little bit of an older article. It is by Susanna Bedell, along with Thomas Grayboys, Elizabeth Bedell and Bernard Lau. Um, And it is from... 2004. So it's a little bit older from the archives of archives of internal medicine. And the name of the article, it's actually a commentary called words that harm and words that heal. And it talks a little bit about, um, how our language affects us in, um, in the healthcare field and how it affects our patients. And I, I, because I can't follow directions or make up in a decision. Apparently I've picked also another article that went along with it a little bit more of a recent article. By Michael Stewart and Stephen Loftus from JOSPT from 20, 2008, called Sticks and Stones, The Impact of Language in Musculoskeletal Rehabilitation.
0: Those are some great article choices, and I'm really looking forward to further discussion with you on these today. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about the purpose of the articles that you chose?
1: Sure. Um, so the Bedell article uh, was written by cardiologists, actually, so a little bit outside of our field. And... Um, It really is targeted toward physicians, but it talks about the language that we use with patients and how we really need to reconsider how we speak to our patients. And especially from a a, um, catho-anatomical perspective and how some of the language that we use um, can really incite some fear in our patients and kind of increase the level of threat. there were a few standout phrases as I was rereading the article, um, but being one of the things that is said in the article, being ill inherently humbles and corrodes the sense of self, making patients vulnerable to the words of their physicians. Um, and I think the same is true for physical therapy. Um, and so, when somebody is injured, they can take what we say and feel as though their body is under threat, and that affects what we are able to do in terms of rehabilitation, in terms of their recovery. The words that we use can. Create hope, or they can generate fear, anxiety, and hopelessness. And when this happens, it's going to affect further conversation and their feelings of what they can do for themselves, um, affect their decision making regarding their care, and affect healing. Um, on the flip side, using the right words, they say can be powerful medicine, um, which I think is, I think most of us have realized is the case with a lot of our patients. Another thing I, I really thought was that stuck out when I was rereading the article, is they talk about how healing language is also silent. And so allowing patients time to listen to our words, interpret them, and then follow up with questions. Um, And I thought that that was really important. And I think for a lot of us, especially those that are working in a really busy clinical environment, sometimes we don't have the time to, um, or maybe we don't make the time um, to take that pause and follow up and ask, what questions a patient has, or have them repeat back to us what they interpreted and what they're feeling to ensure that they are understanding fully. Um, And so I I think, so this article is a little bit older, it's from 2004, Um, but I was assigned this article back when I was in um, my residency program for the first time. And I think we reread it in my fellowship program. And I think for some younger clinicians, A lot of, I think, Maya, you said that you read this in school, which is amazing. Um, I did not read it until after I graduated. But throughout the physical therapy education program, a lot of programs, at least when I was finishing school, were really biomechanically based and pathoanatomically based. And this has shifted over the last 10 to 15 years. Um, But this is really the first time I thought about really thinking about our pathoanatomical words And what we use and how it could be interpreted by patients. So, things like um, degenerative disc disease or disc herniation or pinched nerve and things like that. Um, And it made me take that step back and think about what it sounds like from a patient's perspective um, and how that affects their internal sense of self and how much threat they're feeling from whatever pain they're experiencing. And then the follow-up article from Stuart, I think, just took a lot of these concepts and just made it really specific for us in the physical therapy world, and I think also provided us a lot of um, alternatives in terms of how we explain things to patients as well. So that Stewart article, I you know, there were a couple a couple just great lines in there, um, but one of the things I I really liked was. Like drugs, words have an ability to change the way another person thinks and feels, um, both in good ways and not so good ways. Um, and thinking about, you know, we know based off of a lot of our clinical practice guidelines and other research studies, is a lot of our psychological factors more accurately predict pain and disability than whatever is going on pathoanatomically, and so. As a result, why are we focusing on these pathoanatomical explanations? They're often easier, right? Because they they're easier to explain that way, but um, oftentimes cause more harm than they do help.
0: So you touched on some really great points with these articles, but between the two articles, did you have any major takeaways that you wanted to share with us?
1: I think the the biggest thing we think about how. We define pain these days, and you know if we look at how the International Association IASP or International Association for the Study of Pain defines pain, it's an unpleasant sensory and emotional experience associated with or resembling uh, actual or potential damage. And you know a lot of the the topics that are discussed in these two articles um, really encourage us to be careful with our terminology because of the fact that it creates the potential for threat within our patients, right? And so if we are using um, scary or threatening language, when we're using that language, um, we can either increase a patient's level of threat or we can increase a patient's level of safety. And if a patient has an increased level of threat within their own body, they can't trust it very well They are going to be hesitant to um, do a home exercise program. They are going to be hesitant to share, potentially share further what they're feeling or thinking about their body. They may be more eager or um, more apt to choose more invasive procedures and things like that, which we know aren't always necessary. Um, And I, I think all of this goes along with the research we've we've talked about with pain neuroscience education. Um, but ultimately the longer I practice, the more I realize that really what we're trying, if we drill everything down to what we do in physical therapy is that we're really trying to create a sense of safety rather than threat for our patients, both in the clinic and within the patients themselves. And we really want to think about the words that we're using and whether or not we are creating a sense of safety or a, a sense of danger. Um, because a sense of danger is going to cause overprotection and um, a lack of self-efficacy um, versus a sense of safety, which is going to allow people to move more and be more active and trust themselves more. Um, the other thing I think these articles have really made me think about or be a little more, more proactive about is instead of me just educating a patient on what I think is going on, I I oftentimes will actually start out by saying, what do you think is going on? And it helps us figure out what preconceived notions that they may have based on prior imaging studies, diagnostic testing, or discussions with other healthcare providers. And I think most of us that are practicing have had the experience where a patient comes in either after hearing something from another provider or after reading through a radiology report where they have an elevated level of fear. And whether it's degenerative disc disease or herniation, those are the things that come to mind, or bone on bone um, where, you know, they think these these issues are not amenable to change. And it is true that we are not necessarily changing these things in terms of physical therapy, but in terms of physical therapy, we have the ability to change the sy-
0: symptoms
1: and the function associated with a lot, with it a lot of the time. Um, and so asking the patient what they understand and what preconceived notions they have. Um, so I know that what thoughts we may need to start working towards readjusting. And that's the tricky part, right? It's, it's a lot easier to educate somebody on something when they're coming kind of as a blank canvas. It's, a, it's much, much trickier um, to change somebody's thoughts and sense of sense of injury or sense of self once they've been Thinking things for a prolonged period of time. So
0: thank you for the really insightful summary on the importance of how we define and understand pain and pain neuroscience education as clinicians. So, can you help us understand how these results transferred into your clinical practice? I think this goes back to some of some of what we we just talked about, but really
1: asking a patient. What they know or what they think about their pain, what they think is causing their pain, and then being careful to rephrase and consistently use terminology that is less scary. You know, I've heard from a lot of um, a lot of mentors over the years or instructors and things like that. You know, you get cute little like cute little phrases, but sort of. um, You know, I think. Crepitus within the knee or popping or clicking or something like that. You know, I, I had a um, an instructor one time say, oh, you're just a little bit more musical. And it's a goofy little, it's a goofy little saying, but it actually usually gets a little bit of a laugh from people. Um, and, you know, that kind of changes the, changes the mood a little bit, or, you know, I think for degenerative changes, Um, kisses of time or wrinkles on the inside, you know, they're there may not be the prettiest thing in the world. But it doesn't necessarily mean that there's a problem. Um, Or it doesn't necessarily mean that the patient is doomed to pain and dysfunction for a prolonged period of time. Um, And so kind of just being consistent with my terminology and being really careful. And it is really easy sometimes to just, you know, throw out, terminology, or things like that, um, that, you know, you realize in the back end, you're like, oh, maybe that's not, not the most helpful phrasing. Um, The other thing I've done, both in teaching is we've, we've used a lot of these concepts, we read these articles in class, um, and our students practice using patient friendly terms, not only patient friendly terms, in terms of patient-friendly explanations, but also um, minimizing the use of of potentially threatening words. And so we have them do patient education, film themselves, and then rewatch, and then provide peer reviews as well. And I think that this has been really, really helpful, um, both to listen to themselves and then see other people explain things and kind of think about it from the perspective of a patient. That's how I've had had this trans, transfer into clinical practice the most.
0: That was really helpful, Lauren, and I'm looking forward to incorporating some of these clinical pearls into my own practice. Uh, I really appreciate your time and everything that you had to share with us today, but before you go, I'd like to end with one question, and that is, what is one piece of advice that you would give to a new PT starting out?
1: So I'm going to go back in time to when I was in PT student. And when I was a PT student and I was on my clinicals, I thought that when I passed my boards and I finished PT school, I would be able to help each and every one of my patients. Um, and I was out in the clinic for a little while and I was like, oh my gosh, I still have a lot to learn. Um, so I started a residency program and I thought that when I was done, I was going to be an excellent clinician who could help absolutely everyone. And when I got out of that, I realized I still needed to learn a lot more. And I did a fellowship program and I finally came to the conclusion that I was never gonna be done learning. Um, And throughout each of those um, learning experiences, um, I picked up a lot of new skills and new um, and different ways of clinical reasoning and was able to interact with a lot of mentors. And I realized that, you know, we're you learn this in school, that you're never going to be done learning and that we all need to be lifelong learners. Um, But the longer you practice, the more you realize that's the case. And I think that's one of the coolest things about our field um, is that um, things are constantly changing, but also each and every patient is different. And as we kind of talked about earlier, there's a lot of what we really need to do is create a sense of safety for patients um, so that they can improve. And um, there's a lot of different ways that we can do that. And so um, it makes it exciting because we're never going to be done learning. Um, and I think we're really lucky in our field that we're able to do those things.
0: So that was a really a good example. It really resonated with me about driving home the importance of Just continuing to educate yourself as a clinician, as a resident, even as a fellow and beyond. But thank you, Lauren, so much for sharing this article with us and for the thoughtful discussion that you've provided today. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. This has been the Physical Therapy Network.